This is a hopeful word, our Lord. And this is a, a word that holds high your sovereign action in redeeming us. And might that be a comfort to us as we make our way in this world and as we make our way through worship this morning. Father, we may be in this moment distracted by pressures and weights and burdens and cares. Might you not only free us from preoccupation with those things in this moment, but might you by this word Cause us to think about those pressures and weights in a fresh way that gives us hope in Christ. And Father, would you change us? There is not one in this room who does not need change. We all need the transforming work of Christ. And when we are in Christ, it is just that which we have been given. So would you cause us to be refreshed by You, changed by You, transformed by You, as we worship You through this Word. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In his book, Rise and Shine, Chuck Swindoll recounts a significant event from the past century. When the great exhibition of works of industry of all nations was opened by Queen Victoria in 1851, people flocked to Hyde Park to behold what they called the marvels. The magic power, quote-unquote, back then was steam. Steam plows, steam organs, even a steam cannon. But do you know what won the prize as the most remarkable invention that year? It was a steam-driven invention that had 7,000 parts. All kinds of pulleys and bells and whistles and gears, gears that meshed with gears and uh, gears that hummed in harmony and whirled in perfect synchronization. It was a sight to behold. And do you know what that invention accomplished? Absolutely nothing. Some of us feel the same way. That our lives are a complex web of activities and people and problems that are intermeshed with one another but that have no meaning or significance. Our lives at times feel to be futile. We feel empty. Or or when our lives are full, our lives appear to be full, not with things of great meaning, but but full of trouble and heartache and things that are, are worthless and empty. Our lives may be inundated by burdens that have left us sad or depressed or angry, or apathetic, or relationally disengaged, or disillusioned, and sometimes even suicidal. We have problems, and we want out of them. Because we just don't see any value or benefit to our circumstances, life has become to us overwhelmingly difficult. In two short verses, tucked into the middle of what some have called the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written, Paul gives us hope. Paul gives us hope when we are troubled by life. And Romans 8, 28 and 29 is God's gift to offer comfort and peace when we are suffering. These verses... These verses are not just about comfort and hope. These verses are about sanctification and about how God is redeeming our troubles to produce good in us. The the context of the chapter tells us that this is about sanctification. For way back in chapter 5, Paul began talking about the process of sanctification and, and that has been his theme all the way through this chapter and will be until the end of this chapter. So the context tells us he's talking about sanctification. And and the verses themselves, as we will see, tell us that he's talking about the sanctification process. But, But while these verses are about sanctification, they're also about God. In fact, the whole book of Romans is about God. Now, that that seems to be something of a self-evident statement because the Bible is about God. But 
But in a very particular way, Romans is about God in, in ways that some other books are not overtly or as clearly about God. For, for in the book of Romans, the name of God is mentioned, God is mentioned directly by name 153 times. If you, if you average it out, the name of God is mentioned in this book every third verse. That's, that's more frequently than any other book in the New Testament, save for 1 John and 1 Peter, books which are far shorter than this letter. It is as if Paul is intentionally, persistently, relentlessly drawing us back to the nature of God and the character of God as being the ground of our life and our life in Christ. In fact, these, these two verses mention either by name or by pronoun or by inference the name of God nine times. These verses are not just about sanctification, but these verses are saturated with the character of God in the process of our sanctification. He not only has the power to sanctify, but He has the authority and the right to sanctify us. And these verses thus and these references to God's character and nature also become a means of encouraging the believer to trust in the God who is accomplishing our sanctification. As we look together at these two verses this morning, we are going to discover that Paul's emphasis is that God designs every circumstance of our lives for our spiritual advantage. God designs, God plans, God purposes, God directs every single circumstance, every situation, Every relationship, every word in our lives is, is designed by God to move us towards Christ-likeness. So God is sovereignly guiding, and He is sovereignly guiding our sanctification. So we might say it even more concisely, God is sovereignly guiding our sanctification. There's a, a sovereign work of sanctification being produced in our lives. And as we, as we come to this passage, we will discover five components to our sovereignly sanctified and ordered life. Five components to our sovereignly ordered sanctification. The first is given to us at the first part of verse 28, and it is simply this, the reality of sovereign sanctification, the reality of God's sovereign sanctification. Verse 28 begins, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We know. And when he says, we know, he means that he is about to say something that is nothing new to the Roman readers. Paul, Paul's not giving new revelation. In fact, we might translate the word with this sense, we have known in the past and we continue to know. This, this has been something that we have known and we, we still know this to be true. The truths about God's sovereignty and the truths about sanctification have been taught before. And, and as we have all looked at life, we have understood and we have perceived these things about God to be true. But, but Paul's point is not just that they have been taught these things previously and, and they know these things from previous teaching, but, but Paul's point is that as they have lived life, they have experienced these things. They know from, from the progress of their own lives and their own experience that the grace of God in their lives and all of the various circumstances of their lives is being designed to produce their sanctification. And just keep your finger here and just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 6. Chapter 6 where he also is talking about the process of sanctification and, and we, we've just seen God behind the curtains um, working in our sanctification to progress us in Christ over and over. Consider, for instance, verse 20, chapter 6. When you were slaves of sin, he says, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, when you were in Adam, underneath Adam, controlled by sin, controlled by Satan, you were not able to do works of righteousness. Therefore, verse 21, what, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? So they're now your shame. What benefit were you there, were they to you then? They, they weren't. The outcome of these things, Paul says, is death. 
But now, verse 22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You know how God has worked in your life in the past and you know that God in removing you from sin and placing you in Christ, notice what he says in verse 22, is your benefit. And the benefit is that it has produced sanctification in you. It has has produced conformity to Christ in you. And so when Paul says in verse 28 of chapter 8, when he says, "You, you know, we know that these things are true, that already has been their life experience. There's a reality to the sanctification process that that is currently true, has always been true, and has always been known, has been always believed by God's followers. And the truth is that God's goal is to sanctify believers and that the process of sanctification happens in all circumstances. We might say it this way. There's no circumstance which precludes salvation. There's no situation in which God is not working towards our sanctification, and we know that to be true. This is, this is not new. This is reality. This is what we already know. Having said that, Paul also is going to point out that there is a limitation to sovereign sanctification. There is a, a limit to sovereign sanctification, and the limitation is this. He only works good in circumstances for those who love God. What's, what's interesting about, about verse 28, you can't really capture the sense of it uh, by your English translation, but, but that little phrase, to those who love God, is preeminent in the verse. And so the way Paul structures the, the word, the, the verse by word order is, is really this way. We know that to those who love God, all things work together for good. And Paul, um, in, in the Greek language, is an inflected language. So you can, you can, um, in a sense, put the words in pretty much any order you want. And the words that are at the front of the sentence tend to be the things that are most emphasized and the most important and what, what the writer wants to draw our attention to. And so when Paul says, we know that to those who love God, he's trying to draw attention to this is particularly true, this is only true of those who love God. And the question then is, well, well what does Paul mean when he says those who love God? Who, who are the people that he is talking about? Well, he identifies those who love God with the very next phrase. To those who love God, we might insert the words that is, to those who love God, that is, to those who are called according to his purpose. The, the people who love God are, are those who have been called by God. Well, what does Paul mean by called? What is the calling of God in a person's life? Well, when we think about the calling of God, there are two particular ways that God calls people. The first way is that there is a general, broad call of God to all men in every place, at every time, in every location, to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about this to the Athenian people on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, when he says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. God's declaration to all people in every location at every time is that they must repent and turn to Jesus Christ for faith. That is that is the broad call of God that it goes to every man. Now we know from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22 that not everyone will respond to that call. So, so he says in Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. So, so all are called, but, but not all respond in faith. And so there is a second kind of call that relates to those who will believe in Jesus Christ. And, and it is to say that, that they are called with an effectual calling. 
an effectual calling. That is, it is an effective calling. So God calls them, and those who are called in a particular way respond in faith unerringly. They, they will respond in faith and obedience to God. Keep your finger again in Romans 8 and turn forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26, the apostle begins by saying, consider your calling, brothers. In other words, consider how it is that you've been called by God. And is Paul talking about the general call of God, or is he talking about the particular call? As we're going to see, he's talking about the particular call of, of, of believers. And we even get an inference of that by the next word, brethren, right? So consider your calling, brethren. Brothers, those of you who are united as brothers in Jesus Christ, there, there's a unique relationship of fellowship that you have because of your identification with Christ. So he says, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, there were not many mighty, there were not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So God's taken all of the simple things, the unwise things, the foolish things, even the shameful things, the weak things, and He's drawn them to Himself. He has called them so, so that God is glorified and not man. And that's His point, verse 30. But by His doing, you are in Christ. It is, it is His activity that has united you to Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So consider your calling. You, you were called. And this salvation that has been produced in you is God's work alone. So when Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, those who love God, those who are called, he is talking about those who are rightly re- related to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. They are believers in and followers of Jesus Christ by faith. And it is to those alone that He is speaking. It is, it is, it is only those who have confidence that God is working in their lives by faith. And that's, that's one of the implications that we want to draw from this verse, that that all things do work out to good for those who belong to God. If you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, you can be confident that God is working every scenario of your life for His good. Chuck Swindoll captured the idea of this verse when he wrote the following in his book, Improving Your Serve. Here is the first truth to claim when enduring the consequences of suffering. Nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my heavenly Father. Nothing. Whatever occurs, God has sovereignly surveyed and approved. We may not know why, we may never know why, but we do know that our pain is no accident to Him who guides our lives. He is in no way surprised by it all. Before it ever touches us, it passes through Him. And the second truth to claim is this. Everything I endure is designed to prepare me for serving others more effectively. Everything. Friends, that means that, that this verse is a promise to you if you're in Jesus Christ. It, it is a promise that all the circumstances of your life are being accomplished by God and worked by God for good. But, but there's a second implication then that flows from that as well. And that it is, if you are not a lover of God, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not united to Christ, if you're not a Christian, then friends, things do not work to your good. In fact, they work to your bad. In fact, not just to your bad, but they work to your destruction. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this, this verse is of no hope to you unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do 
to be pleasing to God. There, there is nothing in your life that will bring you ultimate pleasure and ultimate satisfaction. Instead, the wrath of God is still on your life because of your sin. And, and because the wrath of God is on you because of your sin, you, you may try to do things that you think will be pleasing to God and it will always fall short. It will never meet the mark of God's absolute perfection in everything. And, and, and because of that, you, you have only one hope and that is to turn to the one who is pleasing to God. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who lived the life that you could not live and died a death that was satisfying to God. So God, God poured out His wrath on Christ. And Christ absorbed that wrath so that He put an end to the wrath. The wrath was finished. The bucket of wrath was drained. And God looked at Christ and said, The debt is paid. I'm satisfied. Christ is pleasing to me. And if you trust in Christ, God is as pleased with you as He is with Christ. And He not only is pleased with you, but He he then pulls back His wrath from against you, frees you from that wrath, so that you don't have to endure His punishment. And it gets even better than that. It gets better in that now you can live a life that is pleasing to Him. You've been freed also from the power of sin, so that you can obey, and you can do things that bring pleasure to God. So you who were unpleasing to God, unable to please God, now can please God. Oh friend, if you are not in Christ, nothing in your life is working for good until you turn to Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, would you today turn in faith to Christ, turn away from your sin, and begin following Christ as your Savior? We are wise to understand then that this verse is a comfort for every believer who loves God. It's a comfort that says, do not fear. And likewise, it is a warning to every unbeliever who does not follow Jesus Christ. And it says, you must fear God. You must fear God. There is the reality of sovereign sanctification. There is the limit of sovereign sanctification. I want you to see, third of all, the extent of sovereign sanctification. There, there's, a, there's a slight question about what Paul actually wrote. The Greek manuscripts, we have many, many man, Greek manuscripts, and there's a slight difference in some of the manuscripts, and so my translation follows some of them that insert a subject clause that says God causes all things to work together for good. And so there's some that, that, that have that subject. Who is it that that is making all things work together for good. God's the one who's doing that. But the vast majority of the Greek texts that we have of Romans chapter 8 simply say all things work together for good. And I think what happened is some editor somewhere somewhere along the line or some copyist was trying to make sure that we understood that that it is God who is behind the curtain, if you will, making everything to work good. And so he slipped in that little phrase, God causes. I think it's simply better to, for us to understand it's simply to say all things work together for good. But even in saying all things work together for good, we understand that we don't believe in just some kind of um, evolutionary optimism that says... Um, well, just the circumstances kind of on their own are kind of weaving their way together and they just kind of happily get to the place where they do good things. No, we understand when Paul says all things are working together for good, that there is a divine mover behind the scenes. What Paul wants to draw attention to here, though, is not that God is causing these things, but he is trying to draw our attention to all things. Now my favorite question to ask when I when I teach through this passage and I, I have taught through this passage many times in discipling contexts and in counseling contexts, my my favorite question to ask is what does God mean when he says all things? What do you think? What does God mean when he says all things? All things. Okay.
Does he mean the drunk driver who hits your daughter's car and kills your daughter? Does he mean the alcoholic father that abuses you? Does he mean the sorrowful relationship that you don't want to lose? And you do. He means, friends, all things. And when we think about all things, I want to put it in four categories. Because every circumstance of our life fits into one of four categories. And they're all covered by what Paul says, with all things. Our tendency, our fleshly tendency, my fleshly tendency, is to say all things, but... And I want you to see the, the, the full extent of what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the good, grace-filled circumstances of life. This is, this is the easy stuff. This is the fun stuff. This is... Um, this is like Regina and I went to breakfast um, about six weeks ago, struck up a conversation with another couple at another table, and we're enjoying some fellowship, and, and they left and they had some errands to run, didn't know them from anybody, and we just met them at the restaurant, um, visited for about 15 or 20 minutes, and we left about 20, 30 minutes after, we, after they did, we got to the cash register, and she said, oh, you're covered, paid, sweet. A date with my wife and it was free. (laughs) Right? That's all things work together for good. It's showing up to the office in the morning, right? And your boss says, I need you to come to my office. I need you to see, I need to see. And you go, oh no, I know layoffs are coming. And he says, I just want you to know you've been doing a job with great excellence and you're getting promoted and a $10,000 a year uh, raise. Yes, all things. It's the good stuff. It's the easy stuff. But there are other things in our lives as well. It's the circumstances that arise from living in a fallen world. It's the stuff that Paul talks about starting in verse 18 in this chapter. Verse 20, he says, the creation was subjected to futility. We we live in in a world that functions with futility. This is the stuff that I call... Um, cancer, car accidents, and colds. This is the stuff that happens to you. Nobody intends anything against you. We just live in a world where things don't happen right. Regine, in in great grace, the last two years while I've been at Shepherd's Conference has taken my car and taken it for an oil change. Both years, something happened. Last year, um, she called and said, just want you to know I got the oil change, but when I got to the house, there was no oil in the car. That's not good news. When they refilled the oil, they forgot to put the nut on tight. So my car is towed back to the shop, and they refill it, and in grace, nothing was broken. But that's an inconvenience and a frustration. This year, she called me and said, actually sent me a text and said, I've got your oil changed, and after the oil change, your check engine light came on. And I still don't know what that is. That's the task for this week. That, that's, that's living in this fallen world. You know, things just happen that, that don't work right. There's another kind of circumstance. It's the circumstance, circumstances that arise because of the sins of others against us. It's not just that bad things happen. It's that bad things happen from bad people who want to do stuff against us. This is... This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. There are people that long for your destruction. They see you walk with Christ. They see your obedience to Christ. And they want to see you fail. And they are working to your failure. These are the kind of people that that are evil against you. That's verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. They do evil intentionally against you. They want to harm you. They, they want to hurt you. They're the kind of people that in the flesh, the natural response is to take vengeance against them. Their, their actions are so contrary. Their actions are so difficult. And you say, that's not right. And you want to take vengeance against them. People that are out for your destruction. And there are 
circumstances as well that arise because of our own sins against others. It's not just that others sin against me. I live in a world where I sin against others. I've been bitter and greedy. We were covetous and prideful. We've adulterated our marriage vows. We've spoken unkind words. The list is almost endless. And I don't know about your home, but, but the reality is the person that receives most of that is my wife. She gets more of my sin against her than any other person in the world, and my children are next in line. Th- those whom we love the most are sinned against most by us. Everything that happens in your life fits into one of those buckets. Everything. And Paul says, every one of those is working by God's design for your good. There's nothing outside of that that isn't designed by God for your good. Every, everything fits there and all of it is for your good. I want to add one more clarifying comment as we think about this, and that is that while God does not sanction or author sin, He is still sovereign over sin, and He uses it to transform us. So if you notice the, the last two categories, circumstances that arise because of our sin, circumstances that arise because of sins against others, that's, that's God's sovereignly working sin for good. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit cautious there because it almost sounds like we're saying that God is causing the sin Himself. It, it almost seems to be stepping into an area where we know theologically we don't want to go, right? It's interesting. The Scriptures talk about this with some frequency. Consider Lamentations chapter 3, 37-38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? In case we don't get the point, listen to what he says in this verse. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good good and ill go forth? God is behind all the words. God is designing, purposing, using all the words. Isaiah 14, similar idea. The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? There's no plan that happens except it is passed through the hands of God. As, and as for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Building on this idea, Isaiah 45, 7, the one forming light and creating darkness Causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all of these. So, so the Lord is behind all these things. In fact, if, if we, if we don't capture this sense, listen, listen to what Peter says about the crucifixion of Christ in Acts chapter 2. Speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, he says, this man, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You did it. You nailed him. You put him there. You killed him. But you did it as part of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So nothing you did that was sinful, and it was the greatest sin that ever was committed, lies outside the plan of God to accomplish His good. And isn't that true? That God used sin to accomplish good, that is, the good of our redemption. And friends, in a very similar way, God is working every circumstance of your life to good. Everything. The hard words that you don't want to hear are good for you. The pleasant words are good for you. The difficult obedience is good for you. The easy obedience is good for you. The fellowship of the brotherhood is good for you. Everything in your life, everything is being used for your good. That's the extent of God's sovereign sanctification. 
I want you to see this as well. Number four, I want you to see the hope of sovereign sanctification. The hope of sovereign sanctification. Notice what Paul says in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. That is, God as the orchestrator of our circumstances is making them to work profitably for us. They're, they're not just, they're not just working out like, well don't worry, it'll work out somehow, some way. No, no, they are working out for good. Now, There's a word good in the Greek language that has the sense of it is aesthetically beautiful or aesthetically pleasing, like like that pot roast is beautiful, that bowl of ice cream from Bluebell is beautiful, that my wife is a a vision and a rapture from God and she's beautiful. Um, Those are all true statements, but that's not what Paul is talking about. When he uses the word good here, he means it is morally good, it is right, It is true. It is beneficial. It is good in character. It is a final good. It is a final and true good. Not, Not merely something we think to be good like our pleasures. And part of that goodness is given to us in verse 18. We... Uh, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's hard stuff now, suffering, but there's glory that is coming. That's certainly, certainly part of the good. It is certainly the ultimate end of the good. But, but God is working all kinds of good things in us. And, and, and the question to us might be, what, what kind of things in our lives are, are working for good? Or what are some of the beneficial things that God is working in our lives through our various circumstances? Well, there, there, there are a variety of ways that God might be working good. Consider, for instance, a, a couple that comes to you for counseling. They come in the room, they sit down, uh, you've got two chairs sitting in front of your desk, you're seated there, you greet them, have a seat. You've got two chairs, and they're kind of close together, and as soon as they sit down, they pick up the chairs and they move them apart from each other. Now, it's only like an additional 6 to 12 inches, but that action has told you something, isn't it? They, they don't want to be near each other. There's, there's something going on. And so you just start asking some questions. So what's going on? Tell me about your situation. And man, it comes flying out. And you realize we, we've got some problems here. Is that good? Or is that bad? It sounds pretty bad to me. But it's good, isn't it? Because the revelation of sin tells us what needs to be repented of. And as soon as there is repentance, and as soon as we have a book of truth in front of us, the Scriptures, that we can open, we can say, oh friend, there's hope. This can be fixed by God's grace. So when they move those chairs apart and all that venom comes spilling out, the the knee jerk is to say, oh, that's bad. Oh, no friend, that's good. It's hopeful because now God can change this. Consider the story of John Wesley. His father was a pastor um, who faced um, significant opposition in his parish. And on February 9th of 1709, a fire broke out in his home in the middle of the night. And it appeared that some who were opposed to Samuel Wesley set the fire intentionally while his family was in that home. And, and the house was in flames and everyone was, was outside the home except six-year-old John Wesley who was in a second-story room. And two neighbors got together, one standing on the shoulders of the other and grabbed West John, little John Wesley out of that window and saved his life. And Samuel Wesley gathered his friends and neighbors together and said, Come, neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to God. He has given me all of my eight children. Let the house go. I'm rich enough. When your house burns to the ground, is that bad news? Yeah. Is it an opportunity to learn 
What is valuable? Is it an opportunity to learn to give thanks in everything? Yes. Our tendency is to say, though, though most of us wouldn't say it verbally, yes, I know God works good in troublesome trials. That's true. But not in my trials. That, that's for other people. That's not for me. That's, that's for others. Friend, in your circumstance, in your trial, in your burden, in, in the sins that others have committed against you, in the incredible pain you are enduring, in, in the disappointment that you have experienced, in your loneliness, in your ostracism, in your persecution, God is orchestrating all of it to your advantage and for your good. In case, in case we miss the point, a look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Those weren't just theoretical categories for the Apostle Paul. If you go back and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that's Paul's life. These weren't just ideas that he was thinking about extreme circumstances. He's just reflecting back on what he has experienced. And is that good or is that bad? Verse 37, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. I'm convinced, not, I kind of think, occasionally this thought has passed through my my head, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, no circumstance will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Friend, it's to good every single thing is to good. That is our hope. Now the question is, finally, what is the good of our sovereign sanctification? Because He is working good, what, what is that good? Notice, notice verse 29, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Those words, foreknowledge and predestination, we'll think about those in a little more detail next week. But but for for right now, all I want you to focus on is that when God planned and designed your salvation, He planned and designed it in a very particular way. And that is, He designed your salvation to make you to be conformed to the image of His Son. So as we look at all of the various circumstances of our lives, and all of us have very different circumstances, different influences, different relationships, different weights, different pressures, and all those, God is working in different kind of ways that are good for us. But but underneath or over top of all those different ways that God is working good, there's one preeminent good that He's working, and it's given to us here in verse 29. It is so that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. He, he wants us to borrow from the language, the language from, from chapter 12. He wants us to no longer be conformed to the world, but to be transformed and conformed to Christ. And everything in your life is designed by God to move you to conformity to Christ. And he, when he talks about conformity, he He's talking about something that has a similar form, a similar nature, a similar style to something else. And it it indicates not just that it kind of looks similar, but that inwardly, internally, it is like the other thing it is a copy of. That is, it is not simply a superficial conformity, it is a genuine conformity. Conformity. There's, there's a genuine change and transformation in the believer so that they look like Jesus Christ. And, and in fact, that's the point. Notice he says, conformity not just to anything, but to the image of His Son. Now, I don't know this. 
I'm maybe one of the questions I ask Paul when I get to heaven. But I'm wondering if he isn't thinking back to Genesis chapter 1. So in our creation of our physical bodies, we're created in the image and the likeness of God. Every person is an image bearer of God, reflects in some way the nature and the character of God. Now as regenerated, recreated new creatures, we are made in the image of Christ. No longer, no longer just like God, but, but just like Christ who took on flesh and was manifested on earth. We look like Him. And not just look like Him, but notice the end part of this verse. We are to be conformed to the image of His Son so that we look like Him, we act like Him, we serve like Him, we respond like Him, we speak like Him in such a way so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. So the writer of the Hebrews tells us that the Christ is with us as a brother, right? So, so Christ is our brother, but, but let's be honest. Isn't it hard to think about Jesus as Christ and, and, and Christ as your brother? I mean, honestly, I kind of pull back and say, well, he might be my brother, but man, we are, we are a way different category of brothers because he's the incarnate God. He, he is the perfect God man. And we may be brothers, but I'm not God-man, I'm just man. He is a preeminent brother, and that's the position that he should hold. He, he's not just a brother, he's the firstborn. He's, he's the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn of the resurrection, he's the firstborn among all others. He is, he is like the, the Jewish son, the firstborn son that gets all of the inheritance of the family. That's Christ. And so, when Paul says, so that he would come to be the firstborn among many brethren, so that when we get to heaven, we will recognize Christ as preeminent and exalted and seated on his throne, and we will worship him as the one who is preeminent. But, but I don't think Paul means just when we get to heaven. I understand this to mean that we are designed by God through His foreknowledge, through His predestination, to be conformed to the image of His Son, not just then, but now. And the Christ, even now, would be treasured as the greatest treasure that we have, that, that He is first among us, that we might be like Him. Let's put the passage together. So we think about this passage, four principles come out. First is this, God is working good in our circumstances, but His good is often different than our good. What He knows is good and what we think is good in any given circumstance is quite likely very different. In every circumstance... We have an intended desire. I mean, I, I would like to go out to my car when I leave church this morning and turn it on and the check engine light doesn't come on and never does again, ever, ever. God would rather have me be sanctified than have that check engine light taken off. God would rather, I hate to say this, but God would rather have me spend $1,000 if that will produce sanctification than to have the light go away without spending a dime. God's good and my good are often different and I must, I must align myself to His purposes for me. God is interested in Christ's likeness, not ease. I want life easy, don't you? I don't want trouble. I don't want I don't want long lines at the restaurant. I don't like I don't want long lines at the at the airport. I don't want to stop at traffic lights. I want there always to be more money in less month. I want I want easy street. When the children are little, I wanted all the spankings to be done by the time I got home. (laughs) 
God is not interested in giving me an easy life. He's interested in giving me a sanctified life. Listen to Thomas Watson out of his outstanding book, All Things for Good. 128 pages. I think it's 128 pages on these two verses. It's gold. He says this, Rest in God's wisdom. In the case of the loss, and he's talking here about death, in the loss of dear friends, a wife or child or husband, let us rest satisfied in God's wisdom. God takes away these because He would have more of our love. He breaks the crutches that we may live more upon Him by faith. God would have us to learn to go without crutches and lean only on Him. He's interested in Christ-likeness, not an easy life. If you trust God in your trouble, life may not get easier but you will be more satisfied because you will have Christ. And God is working all things together for our good and His glory. William Cooper was a man who struggled with difficulties in life. He attempted suicide because of his despair, not just once, but four times. And yet in a moment of clarity... Cooper penned this song recognizing the goodness of God's sovereignty. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing never skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. You, for, you fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, nor trust him for his, but, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Oh friends, if you and I are going to thrive spiritually, we must not only acknowledge, but we must embrace God's sovereignty in all things so that we will be sanctified in all things. God really has designed every circumstance of our lives for our spiritual good and our spiritual advantage. Father, those words roll off the, word, off the tongue easily. But they're hard to believe at times. Would you give us faith to believe that you are graciously, sovereignly, wisely using every circumstance of our lives to produce our good and glory for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.